0: right we'll grab your Bibles the title or the subject that we're going to be dealing with tonight if you want a subject is this we're going to be asking a question and the question is is the Bible biblical that that's the subject is the Bible biblical now now behind behind that rather cryptic you know kind of title really lies this question We're going to ask, what should our attitude to the Bible be according to the Bible? Can you see what I mean? What should our attitude to the Bible be according to the Bible? So what we're going to be looking at tonight is what does the Bible say about itself? All right. And you see, there's a very important reason because there's something very dangerous happening in the body of Christ, in this country today, and probably abroad as well. But you're finding today an emphasis away from what the Bible says to the way the Holy Spirit is leading us. Can you see? The emphasis today has moved away from what the Bible says, that nowadays you, you don't want to believe the Bible too literally don't, don't get tied up too literally with the Bible listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying and that today churches what they're saying is that they're more concerned with discerning the will of the Holy Spirit than they are finding out actually what the Bible itself says and that what I want to show you is that that position is utter folly it's something and I should be coming onto this later it's one of the major ways in which satan is undermining what jesus is doing amongst his people today so if you start off go to 2 timothy chapter 3 and we're going to be seeing what the Bible says about itself, and how we should relate to the Bible, how we should understand it, what our attitude towards it should be. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read verse 16 and 17, and Paul says this, he's writing to Timothy and he says, "...all Scripture is inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work now we're going to get into the greek of that or we won't understand what it means first of all paul says all scripture is inspired by god now those three words inspired by god in the greek it's one word and it's theonoustos And it's two words, theos, which means God, and neo, which means to breathe. And it literally means God-breathed. All scripture, the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament is God-breathed. That's what inspiration means, biblically. Now, of course, you've got to understand the significance that the Bible is God-breathed, all right? Because now I am speaking to you. But the only reason you can hear me is because of my breath. Sounds are transmitted via vibrations in the air. Now, can you see that breath causes speech? You can't talk without breath. Therefore, when it says that the scripture is God breathed, it's God breathing out as he speaks. I'm breathing out now and it's coming out to you in words, it's what I'm saying, the Bible is God's words, the Bible is the word of God, the Bible is what God wants to say to us, alright, and in the same way that the Bible is God breathed, if you like, God breathes out, in that he's breathed out and he's spoken to us in the scripture. In the same way that he breathes it out, then we have got to breathe it in, as it were, that God speaks, but we have got to listen. We have got to take in what he says to us. Now today, a lot of, you know, a lot of Christians, especially in the charismatic movement, are really into God speaking to them. Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us, Lord. May I suggest that you read your Bible? Because I've noticed that often when I say Lord speak to me and I'm waiting for some audible voice or someone to knock on the door with a prophecy, I find that in actual fact it's not guaranteed that I get God's word like that. But I find that every time I read the Bible I get God's word. Can you see? We've got to shift the emphasis. So that if we want to hear what God is saying, Lord speak to me, the answer to that is read the Bible, get into the word of god and also as you'll know in greek and in hebrew uh, the languages that the bible was written in in it, greek and hebrew it's the same word in those languages for breath as for spirit it's exactly the same word so in another way we can say that the bible is god breathed it's also god spirited if you like and again people I mean, dashing around, they want to receive more of the Holy Spirit. More, more, Lord of the Holy Spirit. May I suggest that you therefore take in more of the Word of God? Because God's Spirit speaks at all times through God's Word. Now, let's actually look at what Paul says here. First of all, he says that all Scripture is inspired by God, it's God breathed. And he said it's profitable. All scripture is profitable. Now the Greek word is ophelimos, and it means useful, or it means to be of assistance. And what Paul is saying is that the Bible is our assistant in our Christian life. Now, if you were in some position, I mean, say you were a biologist and you ran a kind of a, you know, a laboratory and you were a big biologist working for the government or for some, you know, big multinational corporation, the chances are that because you're so big and important, you will have a personal assistant. And your personal assistant is there to help you with things that you can't do on your own. Well, the Bible is literally our personal assistant. And only a twit has a personal assistant to help them with their job, who never uses them. Can you imagine a a bloke who's got an assistant, and he leaves the assistant, you know, the assistant sitting in the office all day, Mm -hmm. not using them. We've got to use our assistant, and the assistant that God has given us is the Word of God. It's profitable. It's there to assist us. Now, what is it to assist us in? Alright, well, four things. Now, first of all, Paul says that it's profitable for teaching. That's the first thing, for teaching. The Greek is didascalia here, and there's a subtle difference between what the Greek means and what the English means. Because what we need to understand is that the Greek word, the meaning here, is not the idea of simply theory today if you use the word teaching you can think that you're learning assuming that you're getting the theory of what's being taught go to james the first chapter of james little epistle keep keep your finger in um in paul's letter to timothy but listen to what james says in chapter 1 and verse 22 and this is this is what the early church understood by bible teaching he says but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. Can you see the emphasis in the Bible is not simply believing the theory, it's not simply believing the right thing, but the meaning of teaching in the Scripture is not right belief, but right belief practiced. That's what this word teaching means, right belief practiced. Go to Titus. Let me show you how Paul uses this word, teaching. Because nowadays, when we talk about Bible teaching, we tend to talk purely about the content of the teaching. You know, we think of doctrine, and we think, well, that's what someone believes. When Paul wrote to Titus, in chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, in verse 1, look what he says. He says, but as for you, teach what befits sound doctrine. Now, you would think that he was going on now to remind Titus of the importance of the Atonement and Redemption and, uh, you know, sort of like being filled with the Spirit and stuff like that. That's sound doctrine, isn't it? No, 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 look what he says. But as for you, teach what befits sound doctrine. Bid the older men be temperate, serious, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Bid the older women likewise. And for ten verses, Paul goes on talking about practical living. You see, sound doctrine to the early church was (coughs) practical living. It was what you believed, but it was far more than that. It was the way you lived because of what you believed. Uh, Go into 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and in verse 9, we see this again. He says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy, profane, murderers, fathers of murderers, uh, manslayers, immoral persons, sodomites, I mean, all these things. And then he goes on, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So that here, when Paul is talking about that which is contrary to sound doctrine, he's not talking about wrong belief, he's talking about wrong behaviour. Because to the early church, to be receiving Bible teaching wasn't just hearing the theory and believing the truth just believing the right thing it was always on the assumption that what you're hearing you are being obedient to can you see not just a matter of intellectual acquiescence or intellectually understanding it but actually living it out it's a moral thing the truth of god's word being translated into actions in our own lives so, the point about the Bible being used for teaching is that the concept of teaching is this. The Bible shows us the truth in order that we can live right. Not in order that we might be sound. Not in order that we might impress people with what we know about the Bible or our understanding of Christian doctrines. But the Bible gives us the truth that we need to know in order to live Right, and that is the emphasis in the Bible. Okay, the second thing that it's good for, all right, it's good, it's profitable for reproof. Reproof. Now in the Greek word here is elegmos, and it means to convict or to rebuke. The Bible is there to tell us off. To tell us off. In fact, the verb form of elegmos is elencho. Now, go to Ephesians 5, and I'll show you this same word, only in a different verbal form. And in Ephesians 5, verse 11, Paul says this, and I'll tell you, this is something that Christians don't like doing today, but the Bible does command us to. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We are to expose sin. Not just not have anything to do with it, but actually expose it and stand against it. But he says here, that take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. That is elencho. To expose something. And so the thing is, that one of the things that we've got the Bible for, is to expose us when we're wrong. It's to show us that we're wrong, to tell us off, and make us be right, to bring us to repentance and align ourselves with God. And the point about reproof is that we're talking here about moral correction. So we're talking here about when the Bible identifies sin in our lives, therefore showing us that we need to put that right and to repent of it. This is what reproof is, to rebuke, to tell off its moral correction to do with, it, with sin. But you see also... If you reproof something, you prevent it from leaking. Like if you've got a Mac and it's letting the water in, if you reproof it, it prevents the water getting in. It's stopping it leaking. And we saw, do you remember when we did our salvation series, that salvation is absolutely watertight. In fact, we saw in the Old Testament that the Hebrew word for atone meant to cover with pitch. And that it's used in the story of Noah's ark, that he built the ark and that, all the wood, and then he covered it with pitch. He made it absolutely waterproof, so the judgment of the waters couldn't get in. That's the word atone, to cover with pitch. And you see, the point is that we're living in an atmosphere, we're living in a world that is totally under satanic power, alright? And all the time, Satan's little deceptions are trying to seep into us. You know, like water through a leaky roof, you see. And it's the Bible that reproofs us against the lies of the devil. Can you see? It's the Bible that keeps us intellectually watertight so we don't end up being deceived by Satan. So the Bible enables us, it tells us off morally, shows us where there's sin in our lives, and we need to repent. But also it enables us to keep free of the little deceptions and the big deceptions. And believe me, Christians today swallow the most incredible deceptions. But the Bible is there to keep us free from ending up being deceived by the devil. Now then, the third thing is that Paul says that the Bible is for correction. Correction. Now you might think, well, surely that's the same as reproof, isn't it? Well, no, it's not. Completely different Greek word, epanarthosis. Now, this comes from three other words, epi, which means to, arna, which means up, and orthio, to make straight. And what it literally means, all right, is to restore to a right state. If something's drooping, you bring it back so it's straight up again. And in actual fact, it's a nautical term. And in nautical terms, it would mean a course correction, all right. So we're not, when the Bible talks about correction here, Paul's not now meaning moral correction, that's reproof. Here it's talking about course correction, alright, the kind of keeping you on the right path, keeping you on the straight and narrow. And this is sort of life direction, okay. So, for instance, all guidance that we receive from God has got to be tested by the Bible. I mean, we know there are lots of little things where you can take a course of action, and it's wrong, but you don't realise it. And then you, dis- you read something in the Bible, and immediately it corrects you, and you say, oh, I'm going up a gum tree. And immediately it brings you back on the right course. I'll give you an example. All right. Believers who are engaged to unbelievers, they need apanathosis, They need correction from the Bible. They need to be brought back on the right course. Because the Holy Spirit does not lead people to get engaged lead lead believers to get engaged to unbelievers. The Bible is quite clear about this. So if you were sort of to find, you know, that you're engaged to someone who's not a Christian, then immediately tonight you've been corrected. The Bible says be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. So that will be an example, your life direction has become deceived. You're heading in a direction that the Holy Spirit by definition will not lead you. Therefore, you can have your course corrected by the Bible. Can you see the difference between reproof, which is moral, and correction, which is more life direction? Keeping us on the straight and narrow in general terms. And then lastly, it says it's good for training in righteousness. And that word training in the Greek, paideia, it means child training doesn't mean football training, it doesn't mean weight training, it means child training. So that it's literally, this word is referring to bringing up kids, alright? Bringing up kids. Now, of course, when you bring your kids up, you're disciplining them. That's what it is. You bring children up with discipline. But remember, discipline has two completely different aspects. It's got a punitive aspect, i.e. that when a child does wrong, it's punished. That's the punitive aspects of discipline. But of course that's not the major part of disciplining children. The major part of disciplining children is simply bringing them up in such a way that they learn how to be responsible, how to be in control of themselves, how to act. Can you see? That's the most part of it. And the Bible is a very, very large factor in regards to God bringing us up as his sons. Go to Ephesians 4. See this in Ephesians. As usual, we'll be belting about all over the Bible tonight. Ephesians 4 and verse 11, listen to what Paul says. He says and his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, for the equipment of the saints, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into christ now can you see the picture Paul saying look we've got to grow up into manhood not be like children but when he refers to being tossed to and fro what are christians tossed to and fro like children by by wrong doctrines hence the emphasis on correct teaching from the Bible. Can you see that? So therefore, the Bible is absolutely vital in in Father's process of bringing us up into mature children of his. It's, if you like, the Bible is our fatherly advice. Um, it's our kind of a word in your cloth-like ear, son. Alright, now now that, that is what the Bible is to us, alright. So therefore, we've got to start taking real notice of it. Um, also, back back to 2 Timothy, when Paul was writing to him, I've lost it now. But notice one or two other things he says here is that in verse 17 he says look that the man of God might be complete equipped for every good work can you see there it is again making us bringing us into absolute maturity as Christians but also notice what he says at the beginning the first bit we read he said all scripture is inspired by God all the Bible is being used by God for this the Old Testament and the new testament but all of both of them including the bits i'm afraid that you don't like it's as simple as that from genesis to revelation is god's word and we need the whole lot including the bits that bible teachers avoid including the bits that people don't want to preach because they're controversial. Um, a few years ago, I, I went to see a friend of mine. He's actually a Baptist minister, but we keep praying for him. But, no, he's, he's a lovely guy, and, and, and you, know, he's, you know, he is a Baptist pastor. But we were sort of chatting once, and he said to me, he said, Beresford, how would you sum up your ministry? And I said to him, I said, my ministry is to preach the bits of the Bible that other people won't. And that ministry is vitally important. You look back on your Christian life, if you have a church that you're involved with, you look back on your church, look at the, the absolute scarcity of Bible teaching, look at the great gaps missing from what you've been taught. Can you see huge areas of the Bible never touched on? Truths in the Bible that everyone knows is there, but no one actually wants to preach, because then you've got to start doing something about them, and they're controversial. Paul says all Scripture is inspired by God. We need the whole lot, and I'm going to be moving on to show you the danger involved when Christians start trying to throw little bits away. But you see, finally, the reason that all scripture is needed, is simply this. In the Bible, we meet with Jesus. That is why it's so important. It's in the Bible that we meet with Jesus. Uh, Go to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. And this is the bit where Jesus is with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24, firstly verse 25, it's after Jesus has been raised from the dead, they're chatting with Jesus but they don't know it's him. And uh, look what Jesus says, he says, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now what were all the prophets have spoken, that was the Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... Now that's how the Jews said the Old Testament. Moses and all the prophets. That's the entire Old Testament. And beginning with Moses and and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We need every word of the Old and the New Testaments, but go down into verse 32, look, And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up to us the Scriptures? Now that's what anointed Bible, I mean they got a Bible study from Jesus, wow. But that's what anointed, I I hope that tonight you're receiving a Bible study from Jesus. You should be, it's Jesus' word we're studying. But that's what anointed Bible teaching, uh, teaching does, your heart burns within you. Because you're receiving the truth of Jesus, you're actually meeting with Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Now what I want to do now is that we're going to ask ourselves, we're going to have a look at Jesus' attitude to the Bible. We're going to ask ourselves, right, what was Jesus' attitude to the Bible? Is it the same as ours? And believe me, if it's not, then we've got some changing to do, haven't we? Go to Luke 4. Luke chapter 4. You know this. After Jesus was baptised, he was led out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan and satan comes at him with various temptations but the point was each time satan tempted jesus jesus responded with it is written and then quoted the old testament it is written it is written it is written that was simply jesus's way of saying the bible says the bible says Now that is what should be on our lips a lot more as Christians. Not what so-and-so says, not what that church does, not what they're up to, but what the Bible says. When Jesus was confronted with Satan, when he was in ministry on the earth physically, he rebutted everything that Satan said by quoting to him the truth of the Bible. You see, Satan represents deception. The Bible represents truth. If you come against Satan with anything other than the word of God, he's got you. He's got you. I I mean, today there are even Christians who think they are combating Satan by going about casting out evil spirits in a way that is actually occult. This is, can you see, we have got to make sure that everything is absolutely in accordance with what the Bible says. If we're going to come against Satan, it's got to be by the truth of the word of God and nothing else. All right, nothing else whatsoever, okay? And I'll throw out just something for your thought, you know, that you just ch- I'm not going to expound, you know, draw on this, but you think about it. It is absolutely common practice when ministering to people who are demonised to hold this belief that there are demons of certain things, demons of lust demons of anger, demons of this, demons of that, and to kind of, you know, sort of get the demon to name themselves and then cast them out by naming their mind, by naming them. I challenge you to find that in the word of God you want. I just throw that out for you, how easy it is that we end up accepting things that are totally unscriptural. We should cast out demons, yes, but we should do it the way the Bible says, not by some weird, you know, sort of like, you know, way that, that someone else does. It's got to be according to what the Bible says. Just go to Ephesians, again, Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and this is sort of Paul's famous passage about the, um, the armor of, of God. But we want verse 17, when he says, Above all, taking the shield of faith, uh, sorry, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, when Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan was tempted him, Jesus responded to Satan by saying, It is written. It is written. Now, Jesus was there using the sword of the Spirit. But you see, you need to understand that when when you get the phrase, Word of God, there are different words in the Greek for word. This is confusing. There are different words in the Greek for word. Alright. Now, the one that Paul uses here, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, is Rima. Now, some people make the mistake of getting hold of their Bibles and say this is the sword of the Spirit. It's not the sword of the Spirit, alright? Because when you get this word "rema" in the Greek, what it means is, if you like, is a specific bit of the Bible that the Holy Spirit is applying at that particular time. You see, the other word in the Greek for word is Logos. Now, this is the word of God. That's Logos, the written word, kind of the complete, the 100% truth. But Rima is when you take the relevant bit out of the whole mass of truth in the bible and use it specifically in a situation because that is the particular bit of truth that the holy spirit is applying at that particular moment now you mustn't take this too far because the words "rhema" and logos even in the greek new testament are interchangeable but the general idea is there Logos is the written Word of God, as it were. Rema is when you speak the bit of the Word of God that you need at that moment, as the Holy Spirit leads you. But also, in saying that this, the book, is the Logos, in John's Gospel, chapter 1, when Jesus is called the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, that is Logos as well. Now, we're back to the fact that you meet Jesus in the Bible, don't you? You know, Jesus is the Word of God and the Bible is the Word of God, Logos. But Rema is when you're taking the bit of truth that you need and applying that in a situation as the Holy Spirit leads you. So, kind of, the general rule of thumb is this, that Rema is what I call the now bit of truth. The Rema is what the Holy Spirit, is saying now, alright, whereas Logos is the word of God, the truth in its entirety. But here is the point that you must understand, because again, there's a lot of false teaching about this. The rema will come out of the Logos. Anything that God is saying at one particular time will be in absolute accordance with and in the Logos. Can you see? Because the Holy Spirit never ever contradicts the Bible. So therefore with any now thing that the Holy Spirit is saying when you hear Christians saying the Spirit is saying the Spirit is saying How can you find out if it's the Holy Spirit? How can you find out if that's a genuine Rema? I'll tell you you read the Logos and you find out and you test that Rema with the Logos the Word of God and if the two don't agree then it's not a Rema. It's not the Holy Spirit leading. It's satanic. It's evil spirits trying to deceive God's people Rema The Now Word of God, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us at any one time, will never ever disagree in any way whatsoever with what the Bible itself teaches. If you get guidance or revelation from the Holy Spirit that does disagree with the Bible, then you know that you haven't had revelation from the Holy Spirit. You've been deceived. It happens to us all. Again, we've got it upon orthosis. It's our correction when we end up following a wrong course. So then, we've seen that with Jesus, when he was confronted with Satan, what did he do? He quoted the Word of God. Go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. (coughs) Remember, we're asking, what was Jesus' attitude to the Bible? Matthew 11, and get verse 2. Now, this is when John the Baptist has been chucked into prison, you see, and what happens is that he sends his disciples to go and ask Jesus if Jesus really was the Christ or whether he was mistaken, all right? So what's happening is that John wants to send his disciples to check up on whether Jesus is really the Christ or not. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said, Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Now, listen to this... Go and tell John what you hear and see, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is he who takes no offence at me. Now then, can you see, here is Jesus presented by John's disciples, John is now rotting in jail, facing death. John is not sure whether Jesus is Christ or not and therefore he sends his disciples to ask him. Now Jesus sends his disciples back to John with the message, John, you know by the scriptures that I am the Christ. Can you see? In order to answer John's question, Lord, are you the Christ or not? Jesus tells the disciples to go and tell John what he was doing in fulfilment to prophecy. Jesus expected John the Baptist to know that he was the Messiah purely on the basis of Scripture. Can you see the importance of that? In effect... When John's disciples come to Jesus and say John wants to know whether you're the Christ or not In effect Jesus sends them back to tell John to read his Bible That is literally what Jesus does here Of course I'm the Christ I'm fulfilling Old Testament messianic prophecy Jesus expected John the Baptist to know purely on the basis of the Bible itself And look and Jesus said and blessed is he who takes no offense at me Do you not think it is a tragedy when Christians get offended by what the Bible teaches? The number of Christians who get offended when they hear the truth of the Bible, only because it goes against all their Christian practices. But then Jesus went against every Jewish practice they had going. Isn't it a tragedy when we get offended by what Jesus says? We shouldn't get offended at what Jesus says. We should be going 100% with what Jesus says. When you find yourself in conflict with the teaching of the Bible and defending whatever it is your church traditions or something against that, whatever you're defending, even though it's not biblical, just stop and think for one moment. You're saying, Lord, you've offended me. You've offended me, Jesus. Now, is that the way for us to approach our Lord and our God? No, it's not. And one of the things that we've got to be very, very careful that we do is that before we speak up and say, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, let's make sure that we know it's wrong because it's wrong according to the Bible. Let's let's stop this trying to write things off and writing people off just because they're threatening our unbiblical positions. That is the work of prophets. It's prophet's job to be raised up amongst God's people and to bring them back to what God wants. And yet it's a tragedy when you preach the truth of God's word and Christians all over the place get offended. Jesus said, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Let's have a look at the old Sadducees. <clears throat> Now, this was a time when the Sadducees tried to catch Jesus out. I mean, the Pharisees did as well, but the Sadducees tried, and this particular verse that we want is when they had a go. By the way, a good way to remember it, remember there were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, remember, the Pharisees were the Bible believers. They believed the Old Testament, all right? But the the Sadducees, they were the modernists. They were the bishops of Durham. were the liberals they didn't believe literally in the old testament they didn't believe in angels they didn't believe in heaven or the afterlife or stuff like that so the thing to to remember is is that that the pharisee believes in heaven that's how far i see the Sadducee doesn't believe in heaven, so he's Sadducee. Oh, oh I forget, forget it. But that's a good way to remember it. But the point is, look at verse 29. And this is a point where the Sadducees have tried to, slip, uh, to, to trip Jesus up. But look what he says. Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now... This is, this is good. Jesus here, he's talking to leading religionists of the day. When, when are Christians actually going to start going up to people like the Bishop of Durham, going to people like Runcie, going to the leaders of the Methodist Church? who completely deny the truth of the Bible, and other churches as well. When are Christians, rather than hobnobbing with them, going to start saying you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? But Jesus did. But the thing that I want you to notice is that He knew they were wrong because they didn't know the Scriptures. They were going against what the Bible says. Now, we're trying to bring out Jesus' attitude to the Scriptures. the Bible. Can you see? Jesus rebuked people on the basis that they didn't know or that they didn't believe the Bible, alright? And the trouble with the Sadducees is that they were the modernists, alright? And in fact, if you read through the Gospels, there were loads and loads of things that Jesus did because they were prophesied of him in the Old Testament. Jesus based his entire life his entire ministry and his entire teaching on the basis of the Old Testament, which was the Bible, as they had it thus far at that time. Everything Jesus did was based on the truth of the Old Testament. Go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 and find verse 53. And this is the point where Jesus is being arrested. And listen to what Jesus says to them, verse 53, he says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Here are the kind of the soldiers sent by the chief priests, all cocky, we've come to arrest Jesus, Jesus you've gone too far now, we're going to kill you. They didn't kill Jesus, Jesus laid his life down. Who was in charge of the crucifixion? Jesus was in charge. He said, I lay my life down, no man takes it from me. Jesus was in absolute control all the time. And he says, look, he says, now hang on, you know, you little gnats, parading in front of me. He says, don't you realise, if I snap my fingers, Father will send me a lesion of twelve angels, you'll be laid out. Just like Frank Bruno after he drove into that tree the other day, you know, you'll be no, it wasn't no, Mark Tyson wasn't it? Not Bruno, but you know, Jesus is saying, look, he says I don't have to go through this. Angels will rescue me at my command. But listen to what he says. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And then in verse 56, all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. The reason that Jesus, at this point, went to his death, rather than call on angels to help him, is because he knew that the Old Testament said that he had to suffer and die. Even Jesus' crucifixion was on the basis of the Old Testament. Now, can you see what we're seeing here? Jesus' attitude to the Bible was that it couldn't have had a higher place for him than it had. It was the basis of absolutely everything everything that he said everything that he did and everything that he taught so we've seen paul's attitude we've read the bit in timothy and we've seen jesus's attitude <laughs> Okay, okay. I was busted so I killed it. Right, I don't think I've got the faith to pray that a moth can be raised from the dead. Right, anyway, so we've seen Paul's attitude to the Bible. And we've seen that Paul had it right up there, as high as you can get it. We've looked at Jesus' attitude to the Bible, and we've seen that he too had the Bible as high as you could possibly have it. He based everything he said and did on it. So therefore, can you see how high a place the Bible ought to have in our lives as well? Now the next thing I want to ask, alright, we've seen Jesus' attitude to the Bible and Paul's as well, but what I want to ask now is how did Paul the Apostle and, and Jesus, how did they interpret the Bible? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Because nowadays you can say things and Christians say, oh, that's just your interpretation. Well, so we'd better find out how to interpret the Bible properly soon, hadn't we? Or we're never going to agree about anything. So the best thing to do is to find out how did Paul the Apostle interpret it, and how did Jesus interpret it? Well, would you be surprised to discover, and I'm going to show you this in great detail, that they interpreted the Bible absolutely literally from beginning to end every word. Now then... What I want to show you now, we've got to refer to two things that are going on today. Uh, long words, don't be put off by them, I'll explain them. First of all, we're going to look at demythologising and what that is all about, and then we're going to look at deculturalising and what that's all about. But anyway, first of all, demythologising, what does it mean? Well. To demythologise, take the myth out, all right? That's what it means. To demythologise is to take the myth out of something, all right? Now, this is what the modernists, this is where the Bishop of Durham is at, okay? This is why he's such a strange character to work out, it's because he's a modernist, he's an existentialist he's simply a Christian version of an. he's not a Christian, he's an existentialist who thinks though that we ought to believe what the gospel says, alright, that's purely what he is but he doesn't believe it literally in any sense at all, alright and what he's done, people like him they say, well of course, all the miracles and the supernatural in the bible, they're myths because miracles don't happen miracles don't happen because he doesn't believe in a literal God anyway Alright? So therefore, they say you've got to take all the supernatural out. Alright? You demythologize it. And when you've got rid of all the supernatural, then you're left with what the Bible ought to really be about. So, out comes the supernatural. Now, you see, they've got a real problem with that. Alright? And I heard a lovely story once, and, and it was a guy, he was preaching at a church, and he was a modernist, like the Bishop of Durham, you see. And, and, and he was preaching on the crossing of the Red Sea. And of course, remember, the modernists, they're not... They don't care about the truth of the Bible because they don't believe it's true. They want the symbolism. That's what they're after, just the symbolism so this guy was preaching on the Red Sea but he introduced his sermon by saying well of course we, we know now that this wasn't a miracle I mean we're scientific now and you know we know it wasn't supernatural and at certain times of the year the Red Sea at the point where they crossed is only 6 inches deep and of course they all went across on foot because it was only 6 inches deep and he explained all this and then he went on to preach his sermon on all the symbolism of it and after he finished, he was sort of shaking hands with everyone as they went out of the church. And this little old lady, she she said, Oh, oh wasn't that a lovely miracle? Oh, the crossing of. What a miracle. Oh, the power of God. What a miracle. And he said, Oh, I. I don't think you've quite understood. I explained to you that it wasn't a miracle. She said, oh, oh, it was, oh unbelievable what God can do. The entire Egyptian army drowning in six inches of water. <laughs> you see, so the problem is that, that, that as soon as you start taking the supernatural out, you've got nothing left. You know, I mean, it's crazy. They're just silly. They're just silly. It creates more problems than it solves. But obviously the modernists, they're not true Christians. They're not who I'm interested in tonight. But you see, the thing is that genuine believers today are starting to play around with this demythologising. Only a little bit. Not a lot. Not a lot. (laughs) Not a lot, but a little. (laughs) Please, can we have order? Order. For the continuation of this message, would you please go to the next tape. Thank you.